Hey there, how's it going? This is James Tripp. This is episode 15 of Agents of Everything. I'm going to title this episode, The Trauma Question. I actually thought about a number of possibilities like transcending the reality of trauma and this kind of thing. But I decided to go with this simple title. I do want to talk about trauma. It's something that's very prevalent as a concept, it seems to me, in the world today. There seems to be a trauma focus coming in from a lot of places. And I have an interest in this because I've worked with a lot of people over the last few years who have diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder. So I've got some perspective on this. I've also got some personal experience with things like hypnosis and neurolinguistics, this kind of thing, which look at how concepts shape people's experience and relationship with things. And the important thing to remember here, when we talk about the world and things in the world and phenomena in the world, what we are talking about is not the words or the ideas we use to talk about it with, right? So if you take something like trauma, this is a concept. This is an abstract idea. Now, some people might say, well, you know, there's a very concrete thing. This happened to somebody, that happened to somebody. But the word itself, the idea itself is a sort of abstract concept that's used to point to something and make sense of it and therefore shapes relationship with it. Now, I've done stuff on this before on sense making, on how the sense we make creates relationships. There are past podcast episodes on this, the power of relationship. So I'm interested here in how we relate to our past experience. And is it really the past experience itself that has the impact upon us? Or is it how we relate to it in the present? This is a hugely significant thing, especially when looking at a concept like trauma, because this is a way of making sense of certain types of past experience. Now, let me tell you why I'm making this episode right now. It is because I don't hang out on Facebook much anymore. It's very rare that I go on there, but I've had a few reasons to go onto Facebook recently to pop into some groups, answer some messages, this kind of thing. And a post came up and captured my attention. Isn't that what Facebook's all about? And it was from somebody who I believe is an NLP trained person. And I find this kind of curious coming from an NLP trained person. And by the way, if the person who wrote this is listening to this, please do recognize this isn't coming from a place of criticism or critiquing. I think it was a very interesting post and I am delighted to have been stimulated by it. So I thank you very much. So this from an NLP trained person who said, uh, who posted, I'm curious to know how many of my friends slash followers on here think they haven't experienced any trauma in their life or any trauma in your life. So it's directed directly to the reader there. And there's been a lot of, um, responses to this. Now, many of the responses I noted are treating this as if trauma is a thing. All right. Now, the reason I'm saying this is a kind of surprise, maybe to a certain degree coming from an NLP trained person is because in NLP trauma would be what's considered a nominalization. It is the making of a noun out of a much more complex, much more rich process. Therefore, there's a whole bunch of deletion, distortion, generalization that happens when we do this bit of mind magic and turn it into this thing, we thingify it as trauma. And uh, as NLP likes to point out, one of the foundational principles, the map is not the territory, right? The thing we're thinking about is not the ideas we're using to think about it with. There is a gap, a space. We lack equivalence here. And this is not insignificant. So 
a lot of people are saying things like, uh, I was naive to think that I didn't. I just kept pushing it aside. Um, someone else is saying I had, I dated a guy who definitely 100% didn't have any. Worst thing that ever happened was a flat tire. So most of the people talking about this are talking about it as if it's a thing. Someone else said, I used to think that. And the reply from the post was, yeah, I'm finding more and more that no human, no human is exempt from trauma. It's just the levels slash spectrum that varies. Now, I'm going to wear my biases on my sleeve as somebody who works with people who are looking to change their experience. I think this is a very limiting reality tunnel and a potentially harmful one. I'm just going to state that. And I want to just say I'm basing that on my own personal experience, i.e. being on the receiving end of having some of my own past experiences reshaped by a quote-unquote professional therapist in ways that I believe were to my detriment. Uh, and I also am speaking as somebody that's worked with a lot of people who officially have post-traumatic stress disorder diagnosis or my experience of working with those people and helping them transcend that and live better lives. Okay, so I'm, I'm sort of coming from a place of some uh, insight and education here, though I'm not claiming to be absolutely correct or speak absolute truth. So let's dive into this. Now, my response to this person, I don't want to jump on someone's Facebook post. You know, I think it's crappy if you post something on Facebook. When you post something on Facebook, it tends to be oversimplified. Okay, it tends to be short and pithy and this kind of thing. You can't get into a lot of nuance. So I don't like to dive onto posts and you know, critique them or anything like that, or, or assume some position of superiority. So I put quite a gentle reply in here, which was simply this. I said, personally speaking, it's not a frame that I'm convinced is overly generative. Okay. So what do I mean by that? It's not a frame that I'm convinced is overly generative. When we render up reality in a particular way, the way we render it up shapes our perceptions of it, but it shapes our options and it shapes our choices, right? It creates an experience of it. Now, what does trauma mean? Trauma, if we look at it, is a metaphor for one. If you go back and you think, well, where does this idea of trauma come from? As I understand it, I may not be 100% with this, what we now call trauma or post-traumatic stress disorder, okay, related to this concept of trauma, first was sort of identified in the 1800s, and initially it was referred to as railway spine. And the reason it was referred to as railway spine is because in the UK here, the railways were being built and rolled out, and obviously there were train crashes that would occur, and they could be pretty horrific. And there was this interesting phenomenon observed, or phenomenon observed, of people who survived these rail crashes, apparently uninjured, but would have all sorts of ongoing experiences afterwards um, that we would now talk about as the sort of symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, what is labeled post-traumatic stress disorder by the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual of the American Psychiatric Association. Okay, But it was called railway spine at the time. And it was called railway spine because the assumption was there was some kind of invisible damage to the central nervous system, like an actual wound that wasn't seen from the outside, right? And trauma means wound. Okay. So historically, the word trauma had nothing to do with psychology, had nothing to do with the mind, 
It was just a wound to the body. Hence, people have heard the term blunt force trauma, right? You get bashed with a hammer, that's blunt force trauma, right? Traumatic injury, originally, that referred to injury to the body, a physiological injury, which is funny now because if you say to somebody trauma, the first place they go is psychology. So it's important, I think, to remember this bit of history because it reminds us that trauma is a metaphor, okay? Initially, it started out as a metaphor, but these metaphors have consequences because when we think of one thing in terms of another thing, we take the attributes of that other thing and apply it to the one thing, and they may not always fit. So, um, trauma. What is it that people mean by trauma? People generally mean some kind of past experience that creates a wound, a psychological wound. I've seen people say, you know, um, just because I've healed doesn't mean I don't have scars. And again, they're using this physiological terminology, which may not be particularly appropriate to this kind of issue. Now, something I'm going to say here, the people that I work with who have PTSD diagnosis, by the time they come to work with me, they have very often worked with another practitioner. They have very often seen somebody for uh, one of the evidence-based approved protocols here in the UK, which will be EMDR or cognitive behavior therapy. Now, both of these therapists, so far as I can tell, I am not an expert or a scholar in any of these fields. I hear the reports of clients who have been through these programs. I do not, you know, have the direct experience of observing how they are implemented myself, but it seems that whether or not it's cognitive behavior therapy or EMDR here in the UK, what is not questioned is the frame of trauma and post-traumatic stress disorder. So by the time I see people, they often have some awful sense that something is terribly, terribly wrong with them. Some sort of deep harm is going on with them. They are broken in some way. Now, I want to say that different people respond to this label in different ways. I have encountered people who get a quote-unquote diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, and it creates a great sense of relief for them. So the story and the sense it helps them make is relieving for them. They may have some kind of response like, oh my goodness, I thought there was something terribly wrong with me, but it turns out I've just got post-traumatic stress disorder, and this is a thing that people get, right? And I think probably that works by them thinking, it's not me. It's not my fault. It's not some personal weakness. It's a thing that's happened to me called PTSD. Right? This is one response, a sense of relief, because the burden of responsibility is relieved. So I've said this before about diagnostic labels. Diagnostic labels uh, are very valuable for some people, but can be highly limiting for others. This is not just PTSD. It's all manner of diagnostic labels. And some of them get quite fashionable. So um, attention deficit hyperactivity disorders. Everybody seems to be saying, I've got ADHD, I've got ADHD. Somebody even said, you know, you've got ADHD, James. I'm like, really? You know, and I looked at the kind of symptoms list or whatever, the signs list, the correlations list. And I'm like, well, there you go. That, that seems like a pretty good cold read of me, but I don't necessarily identify that way. Okay, I'm not going to take that frame too seriously. Now, I'm not saying some people make this absolute statement, diagnostic labels limit people, right? They kind of do. 
But what limits what liberates, you know, is, is different at different times. So they can be useful for people. They can create this sense of relief. But on the flip side of that, I have encountered other people who have found it greatly debilitating to receive this label, right? And they connected into an idea that something is wrong with me. There's a kind of wound in my brain. There is damage done that I will forever be a victim of, that I cannot transcend, right? I've had people told that, well, you can learn to live with it. You can learn coping strategies. This is a favorite term that seems to come with some modes of therapy, right? And I've had people say things like, you know, if I have to live with this, I'd rather be dead. Because inherent in the description for them is the idea that they cannot be free from it, that it will always influence them, that it will always affect them the way it does. This idea that, you know, even if the wound heals, there will always be scars. So there's a particular sort of bit of business that I tend to do when I'm working with people who come in with these sorts of diagnoses. I tend to offer a different organization of reality. Okay. John Grinder, one of the co-founders of NLP, has a particular thing against what he calls content imposition. And content imposition is when you impose a particular frame, a particular organization of reality upon somebody and tell them or convince them that that is the way it is. Because when somebody gets caught in the grip of this is the way it is, what it cannot be is every other way that it's possible for it to be. So we hold things in these grips of ideas. So John Grinder is very much against content imposition. He always has been. I, as a practitioner, differ from John Grinder. And I often like to point out that John Grinder's use of the term content imposition is a piece of content imposition. It organizes reality in a particular way. It's a way of conceptualizing. I always say, how about an offer? a content offer. What's the difference between an imposition and an offer, right? Notice this, two different ideas, content imposition, content offer. Changes the energy of it, changes the vibe of it, changes the relationship to it. When we change ideas, our relationship changes. So I often will offer clients different organizations of reality. Now, what I'm looking for as I do this is I'm looking for how much does it liberate them? How much does it free them? I am not looking to impose a truth upon them. Now, many times, many well-meaning therapists who fall for particular conceptual frameworks, they start to think my conceptual framework is truth. Then they start to impose it upon the client with little attention being paid for whether this serves the client in their relationship to themselves and their experience, whether it empowers them. So I offer different organizations of reality, but I am paying attention to feedback from the client because I want to know, is this freeing them? Is this liberating them? Is this offering them more options, more choices, more hope, more empowerment? Or is it diminishing them? Is it limiting them? Is it restricting them? Is it having them feel less hope, less empowerment, right? So I want to check the frames I'm laying on. I want to check the organizations of reality. And I think this is a good thing to do. It's one of the reasons why you know, I know people that bag out NLP, kind of a lot of mainstream therapists or people who are in love with the idea of evidence-based protocols. And I really believe that NLP and this kind of understanding, if you're looking at the hypnosis end of NLP, I think it's really important for all therapists, change agents to understand how everything they say 
comes from a particular organization of reality. Everything they say is a form of hypnosis. And by that, I mean it's an invitation into a way of thinking, relating, and experiencing. Right? All therapists are hypnotists. I think it's really important for them to know that they're doing it and not think that their own hypnosis is the speaking of truth. And therefore, they stop paying attention to whether that's serving the client or not, because they think, of course, it's got to be serving the client because I'm offering them the truth. And the truth is always what's going to serve. So people offer this trauma frame and everything they believe to be true about trauma to their clients. And they offer it as truth. They're not offering it. They're imposing it. This is what John Grinder would call a content imposition. They're imposing it. Now, maybe, just maybe that content imposition will serve a client. I'm not saying it's outside the bounds of possibility. It might move them on. It might help them to make a shift or a change in a positive direction. But that's really not what it's about because it's addicted to this idea here. It's a truth addiction is what I call, right? It's like, this is the truth. This isn't an organization of reality. This is the truth. This is the way it is. So one of the things when I have clients come in, they have PTSD diagnosis, if this is not a frame that's serving them, if it's limiting them, if it's bringing them down, if it's disconnecting them from their resourcefulness, right? I offer them a different set of frames, different set of ways of understanding. One of the things that I often say is upfront, I'm not going to give you my whole, you know, every single gambit or strategy I use, but I often point out that I'm not a psychotherapist. I'm not a clinical psychologist or anything like that. So I don't deal in diagnoses. Right. And I will tell the client there's only one diagnosis that I'm going to give you, that I feel qualified to give you. And that is that you are a human being. Now, because you're a human being, you are possessed of a human brain, a mammalian brain, in fact. Right. And a healthy mammalian brain is capable of something very powerful. And human beings, we're, we're the best of this out of all mammals. A healthy human brain, a healthy mammalian brain is highly adaptive and therefore brilliantly capable of learning and change. And in fact, the experience you're experiencing is just this, the healthy adaptation by a healthy human brain, right? This is the frame I offer. You don't have trauma. You have a healthy adaptation by a healthy human brain, right? I often give the example of somebody like if a cat jumped onto a hot stove and burned its paws, it would then stay away from that hot stove. It would learn something, right? It would learn a highly adaptive response to stay away from hot stoves. When it saw the hot stove, it would move away from the hot stove, right? Now, this would mean that if somebody picked up the cat and started moving it towards the hot stove, the cat would start to struggle and wriggle and try and get away. Now, we could say the cat's been traumatized. We could say the cat has made a healthy adaptation to circumstances, okay? A learning, you could call it, in the simplest terms. It's a very, very natural thing, very healthy thing. Now, the only question is, is how adaptive is that learning going forward? So, for example, to give the cat, uh, to, to use the cat example more, let's say the cat's burned itself on the hot stove. If it cannot discern between a hot stove and a cold stove, maybe that adaptation could be nuanced up. That learning could be nuanced up. If the cat is avoiding the kitchen just because of the stove, it overgeneralized this. But the fact that the cat has a healthy mammalian brain 
means that it is still capable of further adaptation, right? It is not fixed. There's been a lot of research over the last few decades demonstrating that neuroplasticity is powerful, is profound, can continue well into old age. There are phenomenal examples. I was watching a video actually just yesterday. Um, I was thinking about clipping a bit out of this and sharing it. It's an interview with a guitarist called John Christ, who was in the uh, rock band Danzig in the 80s. And this guy had a terrible car crash. He broke his neck, broke his spine, severed nerves in his hand, could only use two fingers in his hand, couldn't feel anything across the rest of his hand. Absolutely destroyed, had some brain injury as well, coordination issues. And he's talking in this interview about how he basically rebuilt himself, rebuilt his life, and rebuilt his ability to play guitar. And he plays at a phenomenal level again, but he said he had to learn from scratch. You know, it was a hard time for him physically and psychologically, but he rebuilt that because he's got this powerful, adaptive, a neurological system which even though it was quote unquote, this was literally damaged. This wasn't just a learning, this is physical damage. Real trauma had occurred for John Christ. And yet the power of neuroplasticity, the power of the adaptiveness of the human brain system, right, enabled him to transcend this and bring himself to what he believed is even a higher level of guitar playing than he was at before. Okay, now we're talking about literal trauma there, right? Not the metaphorical kind, we're talking about actual wounding to the physiology, but learning experiences, right? Learning experiences, there's no damage here. There's just a learning experience, just an adaptation by a healthy human brain that is adapted. And it's pretty useful, I think, that people connect with this. And when I'm offering this to people, I'm watching, I'm watching for them to key in. I offer it in a particular way, all right? I'm trained as a hypnotist. I'm aware of how I offer communications in these contexts. I'm running feedback loops with the people to see how they're taking it on, how they're making use of it. Um, but it opens up possibility for them, right? And it opens up possibility for us to do great work because they understand, right? This is just a learning. This is just an adaptation. You have a healthy human adaptive brain, which is exactly what we're going to be using to help uh, refine some things up here, make some nuances, this kind of thing, so that you can um, be freer to live the kind of life that you want to live. Because a lot of the people that I'm working with, by the way, I'm working with military vets, they've had quote unquote traumatic experiences. They've had these things occur while they have been out facing active service, right? They're out there in the field of combat. Now, one of the things I point out is to say, look, what you've got in terms of adaptation here is pretty healthy for that context. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I say, well, what are the symptoms you're experiencing? They're like, well, you know, I get these feelings of anxiety, a high alertness, you know, this kind of thing. I say, so really, you're not very chilled out, right? And they're like, no. I say, so if you were back on a tour and you were all chilled out and relaxed, would that serve you in that context? They say, no. I say, so how do you need to be? right? Alert, on edge, looking out for danger, looking out for problems. This is how they need to be. They have a good adaptation for that context. Now, I work here in Edinburgh, in Scotland, and I have clients come from other places. So I often maybe have a client come over from Glasgow, see me, and I'll say, um, so you come over from Glasgow, right? They say, yes. I say, if you brought with you to Edinburgh a map of Glasgow and tried to navigate Edinburgh, you probably come a cropper 
somewhat. And they say, yes. I said, well, your brain has built a map to navigate by of a combat zone. It's a good map for a combat zone. It's not such a good map for your civilian life, right? So we're just going to be helping you build a new map, build a new set of connections, right? So this is the kind of stuff that I do. Now, everything I'm offering here is pointing towards a different set of possibilities from those that generally tend to be encoded in the trauma frame, right? Now, some people might say, but James, just because we're talking in terms of trauma doesn't mean that we're saying that people cannot transcend that trauma. Okay. Some people might say, yes, you can transcend your trauma. Some people will say, well, you can never quite transcend it. You know, you may heal, but you'll always have scars, always this kind of thing. So different people will render up this kind of whole trauma frame in different ways. I'm not saying it's just one, one monolith at all, but I am suggesting that within the paradigm of trauma, there's this idea that a thing happened and it is in the driving seat. Right? And it's a powerful thing and it's a significant thing and all of this. I don't mean to trivialize anybody's experience, right? So when I'm talking about this stuff, I'm not trivializing. I'm not saying, oh, you don't need to worry about that. It's just some kind of brain thing, right? We're not doing that. I still want to honor what's occurring for them, honor their experience. But within a more generative framework, by generative, I mean containing within it more possibilities, more pathways to moving into uh, a much, much more enjoyable, pleasant, adaptive future. So I'm a bit suspicious of this. And when I see it out there in the world, when I see people starting to talk more and more about trauma and say, everybody has trauma, what seems to be implicit in this is it is the past that has the most power in our lives, but it is the past that is the biggest determinant. I'm not going to suggest that our past plays no influence upon us, but what is everything else? in our life, right? That can serve us as we step into the future. What do we wish to elevate to the status of the most powerful influence? I would question whether the past and particularly the darkest elements of our past, the darkest quote unquote, because there I'm doing some framing, are the things that we want to hold up and, and amplify in power and magnitude and strength. Now, I want to tell you now, very briefly of an experience that I had. And I'm going to keep the details scant on this. I've told this in a richer form elsewhere in private forums, but you know, this is kind of going out to the world. So I'm going to keep this in a, a sort of, sort of more stripped down form. But a few years ago, I got really into the idea of doing shadow work. Okay. Now for those who don't know, shadow work is looking at the stuff that you cannot be within your life. So an example I often give is the concept of being stupid and stupidity. That was a big shadow piece for me. So I couldn't be with the idea that I might be stupid, right? It was such a terrible thing that if somebody called me stupid, even jokingly, I'd have an embodied physical reaction. And it was only when I learned to accept that, yeah, of course I'm stupid. Everyone's stupid. Everybody does stupid things, at least by somebody's judgment. You know, it's part of the human condition to screw up, to mess up, right? To do things ineptly. Uh, so yeah, stupid. I can be stupid. I'm quite capable of that. And to be able to be with that in a grounded, non-reactive way. So to me, shadow work in the simplest way is to take conceptual material that you may have been reactive to, 
right? Not facts in the world, but conceptual material you may have been reactive to and learn to be with it. So perhaps the best way of thinking about shadow work is what you cannot be with will not let you be, right? If you can't be with a particular set of sense about yourself that you might find yourself making about yourself or others might make about you, if you can't be with that, if it creates a terrible reaction, it will not let you be. It will be under the surface driving you. So I love the idea of shadow work and I got a lot of um, uh, movement in my life, a lot of freedom from doing shadow work with myself, self-facilitating shadow work. And I got some really big shifts with this, such really big shifts that I thought, you know, if I hired a professional to do shadow work with me, to facilitate shadow work, someone who really knew what they were doing, my goodness, what kind of freedoms could I create in my life? So I did. I went online and I Googled around and I found a shadow work practitioner. And it was not easy to find somebody who was saying, I specialize in this thing. And my friend, John, he mocked me afterwards saying, you went to do this kind of deep work and you Googled up a practitioner. Okay, maybe I ought to have done a little bit more uh, in terms of due diligence on this one. But I went to see this guy and I'm not going to get into great details, but he immediately started delving into my past, right? And he started to put certain frames around my past. He started to frame certain things up as abuse, which were just like unfortunate events or, or whatever, you know, that was one of the things that he did. Um, and I want to be clear, by the way, I, I'm not going to get into details of this, but I just want to be absolutely clear that in no version of reality would I consider these things that he was intent on framing as abuse, as abuse. And I knew it at the time. And I argued with the guy, I said, you know, that's not, that's, it's not like that, right? And he insisted that it absolutely was like that, right? Because he believed he was dealing in truth. Now, I'm a guy that's trained in NLP, clean language, hypnosis, all of this. I know that he's offering a conceptual framework. I know he's basically hypnotizing me. And even though I know this, it was still pulling me into organizations of reality that I'd never even considered before. And what they were creating did not seem immediately resourceful to me. So I pushed back on this a lot, right? I debated with him. I argued with him. I said, why are you so intent on crawling through my childhood and pulling out everything that was, let's say, subpar and framing it up in the worst possible terms? Why are you so intent on doing that? I said, there's plenty, like there's an abundance of good things within my childhood. You're not interested in any of those. Why is that? And he said to me, because those things didn't traumatize you. So he was adamant that my childhood was filled with trauma and he wanted to show me. He wanted to show me this trauma, show me how I'd been traumatized, right? And I was very, very resistant to this, right? I even got quite angry with him at one point and he accused me of having displaced anger from my childhood, displacing anger from my childhood upon him because he was absolutely sure that his conceptual framework that he'd learned in some therapy school somewhere was reality itself. Okay. Now, fortunately for me, I knew what he was doing, but you know what? It was a real shock to me because even though I did my best to filter that out, he still put ideas and organizations of reality in my head that were difficult to just unsee, right? There's no eternal sunshine of the spotless mind thing erasing it, right? So, um, for the next two weeks, 
I was having nightmares every night, waking up, having a terrible time sleeping. For, for the first time in years, I felt a pervasive sense of depression. It did me no good whatsoever. If it did me any good, it's because I had to go and then rework through all the stuff. I had to do a lot of self-facilitation um, in order to transcend that difference. Now, some people listening might go, oh, James, maybe that guy traumatized you. Well, I could frame it like that, couldn't I? I could say he traumatized me. He would be convinced that he wasn't traumatizing me. He would be convinced that he was simply showing me the trauma of my past, right? Who knows? Is any of it true? Is the world ever made of the ideas we use to make sense of it? No, but some people don't know this. And so they impose their quote unquote truth upon others, regardless of whether it may serve them or not. So I had this experience. It was a powerful experience for me because uh, one thing actually it did is it really put me back in touch with the power of hypnosis. Now, people might think that's funny going, well, James, you're a uh, a practicing hypnotist, you know, surely you know the power of hypnosis, but it's one thing to be using the tools and one thing to be receiving the tools. Now, this guy was an unconscious hypnotist. He didn't know he was doing it, but he was absolutely hypnotizing me so far as, uh, uh, what I mean by that is he was inviting me into a very particular organization of reality that had a psychoactive effect upon me. So I unpicked this and I transcended this and I did all of this, but I thought to myself, how incredibly fortunate am I to be somebody who knows what's going on here or enough of what's going on and is, is um, capable of applying a set of tools that I have learned to be able to uh, transcend this, to not get caught in the grip of it. So I'm not entirely convinced. And some people may also say as they listen to this, well, James, that explains your aversion to the frame of trauma. You know, that explains this is a very personal thing. It's not absolutely the case that the whole trauma frame and the whole trauma paradigm is bad for people. It's just you. It's just a personal thing. Well, yes, I own my biases. And of course, we're all influenced by our experience, right? Of course we are. And that in a sense is what the trauma thing is pointing to, you know, the influence of our experience. I don't know. For me, there's something in the whole trauma frame that doesn't just say, yes, we're influenced by our experience. It invites people into an organization of reality that makes them a victim of their experience, that robs them of their power, that robs them of their generativity, that robs them of the potential to become so much more. There's an interesting phenomenon called post-traumatic growth. Now, even that's referencing the whole trauma frame, but it's interesting. What's the difference between post-traumatic growth and post-traumatic stress disorder, right? What's the difference? Why is it that some people would respond to an adverse event through personal growth and transformation while others get stuck in apparently some kind of holding pattern that doesn't do them any good? I rather suspect that those who experience post-traumatic growth, it's only labeled post-traumatic growth from the outside by some people still caught in the trauma frame, I would almost guarantee that all of those people who experienced post-traumatic growth never framed it as trauma. Right? They stayed out of that frame and they were, remained free to engage in sense-making that would serve them instead of buying into an off-the-shelf framing that I believe probably would have undermined them. All right? Or at least they certainly didn't hang out in that paradigm. That much I can be pretty sure. So. Going back to this Facebook post, um, 
this was uh, yesterday, I think, that I responded to it, and uh, there was no response to my response, which is fine. And I wasn't really going to say anything more, but you know how Facebook works. It throws the thing up that you think you're most likely to engage with. Uh, who knows how the algorithms work, because it seemed to throw up a particular comment that baited me somewhat. And this was from somebody else who also could see there was an issue in the framing inherent within the original post. And the challenge to this was, this is a dangerous and loaded question. And the response to this observation, this is a dangerous loaded question. The response from the original poster was, yes, because I hear too many say they haven't experienced trauma. So I'm trying to shine the light and help people see all the different forms of trauma and recognize that we have all experienced it in some form. Now, when I read that, of course, my experience with this therapist who believed they were doing the right thing, right? They were absolutely convinced because they were completely captured by an ideology, completely captured by a paradigm that they mistook for truth, right? So it says here, I'll read these words again. I'm trying to shine the light and help people see all the different forms of trauma and recognize that we've all experienced it in some form. This is what this therapist was trying to do with me. They were trying to shine the light so far as they were concerned. Shine the light suggests there's something really there to be seen, but they weren't. They were framing it. They weren't shining a light. They were taking experience, curating it and framing it in a particular way, not merely shining a light, right? But they probably believed they were. And they were trying to help me see all the different forms of trauma that I had experienced, but was not recognizing and was therefore mercifully free from. Okay. So of course, once they were framed as such, right. And I went into the experience of them being such, because that's how it was rendered up for me. And that's how hypnosis works. That's how ideas and concepts shape our experience. Right. Um, so it says here, recognize that we've all experienced it in some form. Okay. And, uh, there's a thumbs up on that one. So, um, actually I've just seen the person who's got the thumbs up on it and, uh, this is somebody I respect, but it's interesting. We've got a very different opinion here. You can probably tell by the way, listening to this, you might say, James, you're not being very objective right now. You're quite heated. It is true. I am a little heated. It is possible that this may be a bit of a soapbox issue for me, but not in a reactive way, right? This is speaking as somebody who has had personal experiences of this on a, uh, on a client end and also worked as a practitioner with a great many people. Um, and it is my job in those contexts to help them transcend their pasts and live into a present and future that is nourishing and rewarding and generally good for them. Okay. And it doesn't come from me imposing my truths upon. It comes from me making offers of organizations of reality that they get to take and create with in generative ways. So I have responded to this. I'm going to read my response here. I've said, um, I ref refer to the person who's saying this is a dangerous and loaded question. I'm going to replace their name with X right here. I said, I think X might be pointing to the fact that reality is getting shaped by this question in ways that might not serve some people and may even be to their detriment. And then I've invited the commenter to correct me if I'm off the mark. And then I've written this, some counter questions to illuminate this. Is trauma the only way of rendering up such experiences? 
right? And I'm talking about conceptually rendering. It's the only way of thinking and relating to. Then I've asked the second question here. What possibilities get excluded when rendering up our pasts in this way? Are there more generative ways that we could relate to such past events? And then I've said to riff on the old NLP presupposition, right? And the presupposition I'm going to riff on here in NLP terms is the map is not the territory. Okay, the thing is not the idea that you use to make sense of the thing. Um, I rather like Robert Anton Wilson's rendering of this, which is the model is not the muddle. And that's what I wrote. Uh, but I wrote here, the model is not the muddle, except when the model creates the muddle. And I want to say something about that. The model is not the muddle, except when the model creates the muddle. So this idea, the map is not the territory. The model is not the muddle. What it's saying is the world that we're describing is always much more complex, much more rich, much more multivaried than the words we use and the ideas we use to describe it. The map is not the territory. Now, we don't get to know the territory. We only get to know our mapping of the territory. We only get to know our rendering up of it, our experience of it. I like Robert Anton Wilson's, the model is not the muddle, i.e. the muddle is what's out there in the world because what's out there in the world is to uh, misquote probably Werner Heisenberg, not only more complex than you think, it's more complex than you can think. I've said this elsewhere. The world we live in is a complex system, right? The psychosocial world, the biopsychosocial world that we live in, that we participate in and are of, is a complex system. Complex systems are defined as such by having many, many unknown interconnections and interdependencies and often unknowable, right? So we use our ideas as best as we can to make useful sense. In NLP, there is an advocation to seek useful sense rather than truth. A map is useful sense. It is not claiming to be truth about the territory. Okay, so this is what um, the map is not the territory means. The model is not the muddle. Why is the model not the muddle? The muddle is the complexity. Right? And the model is not the complexity that it's trying to model. But I've added here, except when the model creates the muddle. Why have I added this? Because the way we make sense of things, in a sense, creates a whole new territory, which is the one that we actually act upon. Right? And it's the one that reveals the options and it reveals the choices that we see. So I'm just going to dive into my Zettelkast in here because there's something which I noted yesterday, which relates to this. I'm preparing for the first NLP training that I've run in a long time, running in February. If people are interested in the dates of that, please do contact me. It's going to be a five-day training. Um, that's not why I'm making this episode. But if you are interested in neurolinguistics, this could be a great training for you. But I want to share this quote. And I wish I'd been clearer in where I got this from. It's Bander and Grinder. So it's from one of Bander and Grinder's books but I failed to write down in my notes here which one, but I'm going to read this to you anyway. It says, human beings live in a real world. We do not, however, operate directly or immediately upon that world, but rather we operate within that world using a map or series of maps of that world to guide our behavior within it, right? And I want to just say here, I want to interject, the series of maps doesn't just guide our behavior within it. It creates our experience of it. This is how it works neurologically. So I want to add something to what Bandler and Grinder have said here. The map isn't just a map as in we objectively look at it. The map creates our subjective experience of it. Okay. 
So it goes on here, it says, these maps or representational systems necessarily differ from the territory that they model by three universal processes of human modeling, generalization, deletion, and distortion. Okay, so I'm going to interject here and say, the experience that we have rendered up is not the reality we're dealing with and has been distorted in a variety of different ways, particularly these three specific ways, generalization, deletion, and distortion, or this is one way of mapping it. It goes on to say, when people come to us in therapy expressing pain and dissatisfaction, the limitations which they experience are typically in the representations of the world, not in the world itself. Now, this is a really important thing, okay? The issue is in how we render up reality, not reality itself. So if you take this way of rendering up reality, this trauma frame, why is it that people are so unquestioningly sure that this is the best way to render up reality? And how is it that they can be so absolutely sure that this isn't a set of representations of the world that is creating an unuseful model, right? This is what I mean by the model is not the model, except when the model creates the model, right? So when people, to go back to this quote here, when people experience these limitations, they are within the model. They are within their set of representations about the world. They are within the way they are making sense. I put it to you, the listener, this way of thinking about trauma, this way of thinking in terms of trauma, I should say, about past events, for a great many people, creates a model that ultimately limits them. Okay? And yes, for some people, it's an organization of reality that can bring, at least for a time, some relief. I'm not saying it cannot bring relief. My goodness me, I thought I was going mad, but it's just this trauma, right? That can bring some relief. However, long-term, I am considerably less convinced about its generativity. And I would strongly recommend that to those who wish to not be victim to uh, trauma or to their renderings of past events or whatever, to those who wish to live free lives beyond that, to live liberated lives, empowered lives, good lives, rich lives, nourishing lives, I would suggest exploring different ways of relating to those past events, not ways that dishonor them, not ways that trivialize them, but ways that create a relationship with them that enable you to grow. Okay, so if you found this to be an interesting and useful episode, please do give it a good rating on the platform you listen to on. Maybe it's Apple, maybe it's Spotify, something like this. If you want to engage in further conversation about this, please do make sure you're signed up to the Agents of Everything Substack, which is where these podcasts get launched. And if you want to join me for a sort of monthly open frame slash study group slash opportunity to go deeper into anything that we discuss on Agents of Everything, you can find a link around here to the Agents of Everything Nexus. I would love to have you participate in that. And the small fee for participation in that goes to contribute to the ongoing creation of this podcast and the materials that go out into the world. You also get access to quite a considerable resource library around self-transformation, creating in the world, recreating yourself as the creator of your life. 
And you get kind of basically an open license to ask me pretty much any questions at any time. And I will create like audio material responses. So if that sounds good, check out the agents of everything Nexus. And beyond all of that, I look forward to when we next connect.